At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Last Sunday was Easter. So first of all, congratulations for coming back. So uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, But last Sunday on Easter Sunday, we talked about this encouraging point that Easter is not the end, but it is the beginning. And even after the service last week, I had the chance to talk to a number of you that that shared with me different things that you were encouraged about, different hope that you uh, were reminded of as a part of that message. And it's the beginning of many things. But this morning... And over the next month or so here at Wildwood, we're going to be talking about something specific that had a beginning at the resurrection of Christ and the events that followed. And that is the beginning of the church. Easter wasn't the end of the church. Easter is the beginning of the church. And for the next several Sundays, we're going to be in a series called The Church. Um, where we are going to be looking at, not a comprehensive conversation by any stretch, but some of what, what the church is, how it came into being, and what the purposes are for it that God has intended. And so we're going to be looking at that over the weeks ahead. We're kicking off that study today by looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. But before we get to the book of Ephesians together, I want to just reflect with you a little bit about an experience that, that I've had a few times over the last several years, and that is taking people to the nation of Israel. Um, my, my friend Mark Burgett uh, invited me to go along on a trip uh, about four or five years ago with him to Israel, and as we went, uh, we got to see this, this wonderful land, and, and the opportunity presented itself for me to help him in guiding some groups there over the last number of years. And, and over the last six years, been a part of helping 100 people see this amazing country. Some of you, I see your faces out there around us. But here's the thing. When we think about why we would go about taking people to the nation of Israel, um, there are some good reasons why to go. One of the reasons to go is to see uh, the land of the Bible in 3D. It's a, it's a living atlas. These are real locations. And you can go and see uh, those things. You can also go and be reminded of the historical veracity of our faith. It's not a faith that is built on a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But it's a faith that is, that is built on history. The God who really is, really came to this earth. And whether it's at the, the Western Wall, remembering the, the, the temple that used to sit on top of it, or here on the right, you see a picture of my wife and I outside the empty tomb. Guess what? It's still empty. Um, we, as we go to those places, we're reminded of those things. And those are some good reasons to go to Israel. But let me tell you one of the reasons why we don't go. We don't go to Israel in order to find God. We don't go to Israel because God lives there. In other words, we have just as much access to God in Norman, Oklahoma, as we do in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee or in Jerusalem. God is just as much here as he is there. But the experience of that and the opportunity that we have to worship that is not location-specific is a new opportunity that has come about since Jesus rose from the dead. It's a new opportunity that is available to us who are inside of the church. Remember, it was Jesus who had a conversation with 
the woman in Samaria near a well where, where he said to her, she, she asked him a question, Jesus, are we going to worship on this mountain or should we go to that mountain over there to worship? And Jesus said, worship is no longer going to be location specific, but all who come to worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. It's something new that happened after the resurrection of Jesus. What happened at the death of Jesus? Inside the temple, there was this big curtain, but did that curtain remain after his death? No, it was torn in two. What was happening? It was a a symbol, a reminder of what was happening, that an opportunity was coming to worship God that was not location-specific. That's part of what has happened as we think about the implications of what God is doing in the church. And this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 together, and we're going to see inside of those verses how this happened and what it means for your life and for mine today as the church was created through the work of Jesus Christ. So I want to read for us Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and then we'll go back and make two observations of it before we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Ephesians 2 verse 11 says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now in these verses today, I want us to see two things. And we're actually going to approach this passage a little bit out of order to see where it's headed before we see how we got there. And so I want us to begin by looking at verses 19 through 22. But this is what I want us to see in those verses. We're invited to make a pilgrimage to a people. To make a pilgrimage to a people. Now, what is it that I'm saying when I I mention that? Pilgrimages are something that are common inside of religious traditions. When you think about the Jewish people in the Old Testament time, several times a year they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to a specific place, in order to celebrate a festival, being reminded of something that God had done. They made a pilgrimage to a specific location where they would celebrate the Passover or the Festival of the Tabernacles or whatever it might be. That was part and parcel of 
the Jewish religion in the Old Testament times. But it's not just something that is common inside of Old Testament times, but it's something that was, is common even among world religions today where people who follow Islam, for example, might want to go to, to Mecca at some point in their life to make a pilgrimage to a holy place, a special location to them. So the question is, is there such a thing for Christians? Is there some place of special significance for us to make a pilgrimage to? Is there a place for us to go to find God? Because here's the thing, and here's what I know about you. I know this about me, I know this about you. If there is some place on earth where God is, you would want to go there, wouldn't you? I mean, if I said that at 2.45 this afternoon in the football stadium at the University of Oklahoma, God is going to be there, what would you do? You'd probably go. I'm just guessing that that's where you would be. You would go there. Why? Because if God is there, you would want to go there. You'd want to be around him. That's, that's the way that, that we're, we're wired. And, and as God has done a work in our lives in Christ, we, we have a predisposition towards him. We want to be with him. We want to be around him. If there is some place on the earth where God is, then, then we want to go to that place. But the question is, is that the way that it works? And if so, where is it? So let's just think about the history of what God has done on the earth and places that were special where God's presence was especially felt. You might go all the way back to the book of Genesis in, in the garden. At the very beginning, God created uh, the earth. He created the garden of Eden. He placed Adam and Eve, the first people inside of that garden, and he walked with them in that garden in the cool of the day. So the question is, for us who want to be around God, do we need to go to the garden of Eden? Well, why can't we do that anymore? Because Adam and Eve sinned and they were kicked out of that garden, right? And the entrance to that garden was guarded by angels. We were not to enter back in. So we can't go to the garden anymore. Well, if we can't go to the garden, where do we go? Do we go to the tent? I mean, remember back in the Old Testament times, God's presence among his people dwelled in the tent over the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? And they would wander in the wilderness after they left Egypt before they settled the promised land. There was a, a tabernacle. There was a tent. And the presence of God was, was known there. The book of Numbers talks about this and the presence of God sitting over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, let me, let me ask you, should we go to the tent? Well, no. Why? Because God's presence didn't stay with the tent. He actually moved on to the temple. So we can't go and, and have Indiana Jones go find the Ark of the Covenant for us so that we can go and have a moment with God. Hey, if you're under 35, just ask somebody over 35 to explain what I just said. We can't just go and find the ark. Why? Because the presence of God wasn't there. So where did it go from there? Well, there was a temple that was built. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was, it was palpable among the people of God. So the question is, if we want to be around the presence of God, should we go to the temple? Should we go to the western wall, the, the retaining wall that was closest to the location where the temple was? Well, no. Why? Because the glory of the Lord left that temple. Ezekiel chapter 10 shows the vision of the glory of the Lord leaving that temple and moving on. God is no longer residing just inside of that place. So if we can't go to the garden, if we can't go to the tent, if we can't go to the temple, 
What about into the, the person of Jesus? I mean, keep in mind, if we were alive in the very first century, what would we have done? We would, we would go to Israel. We would go up to the shore of the Sea of Galilee to, to hear Jesus preach, to watch the miracles that he performed. Why? So that we could be in the presence of God. John chapter 1 says that he came full of grace and truth. The glory of God showed up in Jesus. The presence of God was right there. If we were in the first century, we would go there. But, but why is it that we don't go to the person of Jesus that way today? Because in Acts chapter 1, he waved goodbye. He ascended into heaven. So if we today cannot find the glory of God in this earth, in a garden, a tent, a temple, or a person, where is it? that we could find the presence of God today in this world. Well, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. In verses 19 through 22, it reminds us of where the presence of God dwells today. It lets us know the location where you and I are invited to make a pilgrimage. That location is among us. Now, friends, I'm not saying among us the way that someone who's going to start a cult might say among us. It's not among us like among us exclusively, but it is among us in that those who are gathered together following Christ, trusting him for their eternity, if you are together in Christ, then among the people who are connected to Jesus, the presence of God is known in this world. We see that in verses 19 through 22. Verse 19 just gives us a little bit of context. Uh, we'll go back and look at verse 19 a little more in depth. At the, we look at the second half of the message. But he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's talking here about you and I, those of us who have trusted Christ. He says something here about us. Verse 20 tells us what he says about us. He says that we are a part of a new building, a human building, not a physical one, but a spiritual one. And it's this, this building, it says in verse 20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. When construction was done and ancient times, the cornerstone, the most important stone, was made sure that it was square and level. Because if the cornerstone of the building was square and level, the building could, could support the weight it was intended to support. It would be not leaning. It would be secure. Jesus here described as the cornerstone, the one that allows everything to fit together, the one that provides a firm foundation for all of our lives and eternities to rest upon. That is Jesus. But the, the, the spiritual structure that we're a part of has Jesus as the cornerstone, but it also has a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. I think this is an allusion to the New Testament text. The apostles and prophets, the ones that, that gave us the 27 books of the New Testament. We can include the Old Testament here as well by application, but it's the idea that there's a foundation of the followers of Christ that is resting on God's word, connected and secured by Jesus and his work, and you and I are like stones built on top of that foundation. 
But as we are built on top of that foundation, what is it that is inside of us? What kind of a building is being built here? Verse 21 tells us, it says, in, in him, the whole structure is joined together and it grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Where is the presence of God known today? It is known among his people. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, it lets us know in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit resides within every believer from the moment of their belief. So from the moment that someone trusts in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and resides within their life. And as Americans, this is where we like the story to end, isn't it, to some degree? As Americans, we want it to end there because we're very individual people. And we like the idea that, that, that the Spirit of God is individually dwelling inside of us. But Ephesians chapter 2 goes beyond just saying what happens inside of one person, but it talks about something marvelous that happens in the collection of God's people. And that is that all of us together share this wonderful, wonderful privilege of having the presence of God dwell among us. So that when we want to make a pilgrimage To be in the presence of God, we need not travel to another country. We need not take an expensive vacation. We need not do those things because God is no more there than here. If we want to experience the presence of God and celebrate what God has done, we will go and place ourselves among the people of God because that is where his spirit resides. Paul makes that point clear inside of these verses. Now, what do we do with that? How do we apply that? Well, I want to make a couple of applications for us here. The, the first application I want to make is just to ask, are, are we making it a priority? Are we making it a priority to, to be among the people of God? Now, when I say that, I realize I am preaching to the choir. You guys are here the week after Easter, right? So, uh, but when I talk about making it a priority, obviously this is a priority for you, but it's easy over time for those priorities to slip, isn't it? Life gets busy, lots of things going on. It's challenging for us to, to maintain that commitment to be among the people of God. I'm not just talking about being, you know, sitting in a, in a chair on a Sunday morning for a worship service, but also just gathering with God's people in a small group or Bible study or, or serving him in some way, placing yourself intentionally among the people of God. If we really believe that God is present as we gather, then we gather to celebrate him. What a privilege and opportunity that is. Is it a priority for you to gather and to worship? The second thing I would say by way of, of application is not one of priorities, but it's one of encouragement. See, the true church in the presence of God rests not on a physical location, but it rests on the work of Jesus and the foundation of the scriptures. And guess what? Those things travel. So if, if you're getting ready to leave this place because you're going to graduate and you're going to move to a new city or you're going to take a new job and you wonder, what will I do when I get to this new location? Guess what? Be encouraged. Be encouraged. There's an opportunity to meet with God there among his people as well. The presence of God travels. 
Also, if you are new here and you have left some other location, guess what? As you gather among God's people, the opportunity exists for you to worship and be encouraged here just as you were there. And that also is true, incidentally, even if your program is changing. You know, we, we become creatures of habit. We, we like our, our program and our routine, but what happens when our program or our small group decides they're not going to meet for the summer, they're not going to meet for the fall? Well, guess what? I can intentionally place myself in community around others, and God is there as well. Make a pilgrimage to a people. But the second thing I think it's important for us to see is found in verses 11 through 19 at the beginning part of this section. And here's what I want to encourage us with here. Make a pilgrimage to a people, but do it through the person of Jesus Christ. Make a pilgrimage to a people through the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, how is it that we get to experience the presence of God? It's only possible by what God has done for us in Christ. How is it that we can experience that in community with others? It's only because of what God has done for us in Christ. And we see that in the verses 11 through 19. Now, it's helpful for us as we begin this section of the message to remember the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As it sounds, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church that was growing in the city of Ephesus. But there's something that you need to know about this, this time and this situation. Paul was ethnically a Jew. That was his religion. That was his identity pre-Christ. It was all about being a, a, a Jewish person. And in the Jewish perspective, the Jewish way of life, there were only two kinds of people. There were Jews and then there were Gentiles. And what was a Gentile? A Gentile was everybody else. And that distinction, though it sounds like just language to us, was very real inside of the first century when Paul wrote this letter. There were real divisions, there were real problems between people of a Jewish background and people of a non-Jewish background. Think of it this way, it's like the Montagues and the Capulets. It's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. If I haven't got you yet, it's like the Sooners and the Longhorns, okay? These were two groups of people that had real challenges, the Sharks and the Jets. Maybe I've caught you at some point. But when you think about this challenge, they were, it, was, it was that, but it was intense. There was real dislike. There was real hatred. So when we think about what God has done for us and, and the, his presence residing among his people, the natural question that would come is, okay, if his presence resides, does it reside with them or with us? Because that was the perspective. Insiders, outsiders, Jews, Gentiles. I mean, just look at some of the ways that Paul describes in verses uh, 11 and 12, uh, the Gentiles. He calls them here the, the uncircumcision. Now, that looks like just uh, uh, something that would show up on a medical report to us, but that was a very significant thing in that context. It was, a, it was an insult that Jews would give to non-Jews. Oh, you're just an uncircumcised. It was the U word. Not only that, but he says that one time they were separated from Christ, not even knowing that Messiah was going to come. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Think of this. All of the things that we read in our Old Testament that God did, they were all happening inside of this one people, right? There were, there were so many things that were happening right there in Israel. What, the reason why when we go to Israel we see so many things is because so much happened in that spot. And Jewish people, that was their home, that was their country, that was their place, but 
Others, they were separated. They were alienated from that location. They were strangers of the covenant promises of God. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't know what God had promised them. And because of that, they had no hope. And they were living without God, a relationship with the true God inside of this world. Contrast that with the Jewish people. He doesn't say it, but think about what they might they, they, they were called the circumcision. They were the ones who, who had this sign of a covenant with God. They were separated from Christ, but they had a hope that one day Messiah would come. They, they were members of the commonwealth of Israel. They were a part of the place where God was doing his work. They were recipients of the covenant promises of God. They had hope the Messiah would come. They were living with God in this world. When you think of that, that, that contrast, the, the haves and the have-nots, the Jews and the Gentiles, the hope and the hope-nots. That's these two people. And yet, they both receive the same hope and the same promise from God in Christ. Now, how does that happen, that these two people that want nothing to do with one another are united together in something? Well, we see inside of these verses, beginning in verse 13, that it happened because of what Jesus did. Verse 13 begins and says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Based on what Jesus had done when he offered his life on the cross, he offered his life on the cross as a sacrifice not only for the sins of the Jewish people, but for any who would trust in him including the Gentile residents of Ephesus. There was an opportunity for connection with God based on what Jesus had done. It was a group that was identified not by their Jewishness and not by their Gentileness, but by their Jesusness. If they were in Christ, his work applied to them. His forgiveness was available to them. Not only do we see that, but we see it that he does this described here as inside of one new man. It's a beautiful thing that he says here. What he's saying is, hey, guess what? God doesn't save Gentiles by making them Jews and then reconciling them to himself. And God doesn't save Jews by making them Gentiles and then reconciling them to himself. He says that the way this works is, in this present age, it's not about your ethnicity, it's about connection to God through faith in Christ. And if you trust in Christ, you don't become a Jew or a Gentile, you become a part of this one new man that is reconciled to God. And what is that new man? Friends, that's the church, capital C. If we know Christ We are connected to God on the basis of Jesus and nothing else. Part of this one new man. And the way that that happened is God creates unity by breaking down in the flesh of Jesus this hostility that existed in bringing peace. Through what Jesus did, he he broke down the hostility between God and man by offering his life to to soak up the wrath of God concerning our sins so that there could be peace between God and man. But when Jesus died on the cross, he also made it possible for two very different types of people, Jews and Gentiles, that's all of us in Christ, to be united together. There no longer needs to be any hostility between us. 
Because under Christ, there's a level field. There's him and then there's all of us. The hostility that existed through these decrees and ceremonies and all these things inside of a a Jewish religion, it's not the way that we will connect. It's not by the Gentiles learning those customs. It's by Jews and Gentiles learning that our hope is in Jesus. When we trust in him, we can be forgiven and reconciled and connected to God. Through that, peace is available to all. Peace is available to to each of us with each other and with God. He concludes that section in verse 19 with this beautiful statement. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What he's saying there, friends, is that our identity has changed. If we used to think that our hope was in our passport being American, or in this case, our passport being Israel, or our passport being whatever, our our hope is not in those things. Our hope is in the fact that we've been given a new passport as citizens of the kingdom of God. And in Christ, there is no distinction depending on our ethnicity or our gender or the, the language that we speak or our nationality. In Christ, we have equal access to the Father. That's what the point is of this passage. And not only do we have access as citizens, but we also have access as a part of his household. Why is it that we call God our Father? We call God our Father because we're a part of his household. And that's true regardless of our ethnicity. And that's true regardless of the language that we speak. This new man, this new opportunity, all of us reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Now, what are some applications that we see inside of this? What are some things that we might take with us? Well, the first thing that I would say is I just wouldn't ask you this question. Are you a part of this new movement? Are you a part of this one new man? Are you a part of the church? And by that, I'm not saying, have you signed some membership covenant? Have you been to our starting point class? I mean, those are, are good things. They're conventions that help you integrate into involvement inside of a local congregation. But that's not what I'm talking about inside of Ephesians 2. What I'm talking about in Ephesians 2 is, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you connected to him as your cornerstone? Is the word of God an authority in your life that you're, you're going to as the foundation for all that is happening. If you're turning to Christ, if you're trusting in him, if you're following him, then you're a part of this one new man. You have access to God. The spirit of God resides within you. You come here to meet with him. But if you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, then you're in the presence of what God is doing, but you're missing out on the true blessing that is found in him. Are you part of this new man, this new movement? Be trusted in Christ as your Savior? The second thing I think it's critical for us to think about as we think about applying this passage, and, and that's this. Don't just go to church and look for your people. Remember that we're all a part of a new people. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when you show up, there's something in your brain that's like, these are my people right? And you come here looking for your people. You look around the room, is there anybody here that looks like me about my same age, 
maybe enjoys some of the same things, similar fashion, similar style, drives a similar car? Is there anybody who has kids that go to my school? Is there anybody from my class? Is there anybody I know? You look for your people. If it doesn't happen when you walk in this room, it certainly happens when you take the next step into community. Have you ever wondered about signing up for a small group and you're like, I don't know if I want to go to that small group because are they going to be my people? And you kind of drive by the house hoping that the front window's open to look and see if there's your people on the inside. You ever thought about connecting with a Sunday group on, and, you, and you walk by and you, you look through a little glass window downstairs to look inside to see if any of your people are there? See, we're, we're wired to think that life is found with our people. But in Christ, we need to remember that we're a part of a new people. It's not just those who look like us, who who talk like us, who have the same nationality as us, or whatever it might be. But in Christ, we're a part of a new people, a part of a new household, a new family, a new citizenship. What if we had the expectation when we showed up for church or when we showed up to serve that we're not just looking for somebody that looks like us, but we're looking to find the stamp of God inside of someone else's life. We gather as one new man. Third thing, application. Isn't it interesting how we can make a list of what divides us? I mean, just go right now. Just make it a list in your head. Get to five really fast, six, seven, eight. Lots of things that divide us. But instead of just making the list of what divides us, we need to always remember who unites us. It's Christ. Friends, as we gather as a church, if we spend our time focused on what divides us, we'll remain divided. But if we take the time as a church family to focus on who unites us, oh, the unity Christ bought is found in Christ. It's not found in other things. Last thing. Just remember that we're not just in one room, but when we talk about this unity, we're talking about one access to the Father. You know, sometimes we, we read a passage like this and we wonder, well, why are there all these denominations and why are there all these rooms and everything? Hey, logistically, there are millions and millions of Christians in the world. We will not fit in one room. So look, why, why make that the test of unity? See, our, our, our hope, even as a, an individual congregation, is not just to be in one room, but it's to be of one mind centered on one Savior together. Friends, when we think about what God has done for us in Christ, He has built and set up a, a church, a, a new man, where the presence of God dwells among His people.